Welcome to Cities Church. My name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you came in this morning, you should have a card waiting for you on your seat. It's kind of our snapshot photo of our Hold the Rope offering. Every year, our church joins together to make a one-time donation over and beyond our regular tithes and offerings in order to catalyze, right, these strategic ministry and mission partners. And we hope our goal, right, is does not stay in the room, not stay on your seat, but really for you to take it with you. Maybe you can join um, in praying, say, Lord, how can I be a part? How can my family be a part? Or maybe it could be an opportunity for you to join with your family, kind of bring them in, or join with your community group, kind of bring them in. I always think, uh, try to find opportunities for my children, right, to try to welcome them into what, what the Lord's doing in the big church, right? Do you remember when you called it big church, like little church over there, big church over here? You know, what's the Lord doing in the big church? This is an opportunity to sit down with your kids and to pray through, because the ministry partners are listed on the back our local, our national, our global partners, or maybe you and your spouse, or maybe you and your roommate, or maybe you're in your community group, again, to join together as a church, to pray that the Lord would um, move the mission of his word um, through our generosity and through those mission partners. Well, today, we are going to be closing out our series in Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 16. You can flip there, and I'll be there in a second. Mark chapter 16. Um, but we've been going the last approximate 20 weeks through the gospel of Mark. And really, our series, like the gospel itself, kind of is unfolded into two parts. The first part, the first eight chapters, Jesus is unknown. The main question, if you read through it, is who is this? Who is this who teaches with authority? Who is this that can cast out the demons? Who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Well, there right in the middle of the gospel, we find the answer. That's Peter's confession. When Peter says, you know, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and we're like, yes, that's it. But in the second half of the gospel, we figure out that, that what that means for Jesus to be the Christ is unexpected. He was unknown, and then now the confession is made, it's unexpected. Because immediately after Peter says it, um, he rebukes Jesus, or tries to. Because Jesus said, hey, you know what it means? I'm about to go and suffer and be betrayed and die and rise. And Jesus says, never. It's unexpected. And we, the past two weeks, have seen maybe the, 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 the pinnacle of how it's unexpected, with his betrayal and his death at the cross. And here in chapter 16, we're going to see, too, the resurrection. How the resurrection is literally, right, the last thing on the disciples' minds. It is completely out of left field, completely unexpected. I think our problem may be um, that it's not the same for us. Um, we are not shocked. We are not awed. We're not bowled over by the resurrection of the Lord. Uh, maybe we've been a Christian long enough, we've read the story. It's like, I already know how this one ends. Uh, maybe you've been around Christians or living in the South long enough, you're like, yeah, I can answer the trivia question. You know, did Jesus rise from the dead? True. Or maybe things are just so busy, so busy right now in your life, you can't really have very much else at the front of your brain. You have so much going on with work, with family, with the holidays, that anything else, whether it be Jesus and whether it be his resurrection, kind of floats in the background. It's kind of ambient noise or background music. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not opposed to the background noise, especially when it comes to Sunday afternoon naps. You need that background noise. And you've got to be very strategic. You've got to know exactly what you want on the back. It's got to be something that you've seen enough Right, so maybe it's a, a movie that you have. You put it on for the thousandth time. You can fall asleep. Maybe it's an old TV show, album. I don't care what. But for me, the perfect background noise when I'm napping is professional sports. I don't know why. It's like a warm blanket. Golf is at the pinnacle. If you want to ensure a great nap, you put on a round of golf. You know, there's not a bunch of rounds on, so right now I'll settle for the NFL. So I'll have it on and settle in on my couch and try to get a good nap going. 
The other day I had some game on, don't even remember, didn't matter. I was trying, trying there to nap, right? But right when I was drifting off to sleep, something happened. And it, it jarred me awake. And I, and I looked, and I caught midair. My son had launched himself from the couch, right? He was going like a soaring eagle toward the television. And when he lands in the middle of the living room, I mean, the ground shakes, right? Boom, and he lands with a yell. He just yells, fumble! <laughs> He's just kind of now starting to get into sports, and so I didn't have the heart to tell him it was just an incomplete pass. <laughs> but the ball was on the ground. The ball hit the ground. Fumble! And I'm like, what is going on? One, really, think about it, step back and, and reassess. I'm just struck with the difference, the difference between him and me. With him, it's not just a game. I mean, it's something he's like living, right? Something he's a part of. Something he's invested in emotionally. Even physically, he's jumping across the room. But for me, it's just something I was hoping to be on the background. Hoping I'd, you know, to kind of lull me to sleep so I have a nice long winter's nap. Just want to say today, if you are expecting nap time, maybe literally, maybe metaphorically, God through his words about to start jumping on your couch. He's going to wake you up. Because the resurrection is a reality-shaping, it is a life-transforming fact. And the gospel of Mark, it ends with a bang. It ends with a bang when the Lord Jesus walks out of the tomb. And as we're going to see, it ends in a surprising way. The best we can tell, Mark ends his gospel in verse 8. And that's a strange cliffhanger. It's full of suspense. It's full of drama. Why? It's because the Lord will not let this information um, just stay there. Interesting. No, he's going to press it to where it works to transformation. I, I pray that we will hear the invitation of the text today to step into Jesus' resurrection life. But I'm going to read here in Mark chapter 16. As I mentioned, I'm going to read verses 1 to 8. And again, may each of us hear how the Lord's inviting us into this new life through his son Jesus. Mark chapter 16 said, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Today's going to be a little different. The first half of the sermon is going to be a little more theology, put it that way. And what I mean by that is we're going to try to take a big picture look at Scripture. We're going to try to talk about, I'm going to say big picture themes. And, and you know, just bear with me if you want to put it that way. It's important. It's important to know what is going on, why it's significant, why it's important. Um, but then the second half will roll in really the experience of the women. And see, it's not just them. This is not just a word about them that we can find interesting. It's really, it's telling us our story. We are to see ourselves in their lives and hear the invitation of the angel ourselves. So let's look here first at the theology of the resurrection. The theology of the resurrection. In our tribe of churches, for whatever reason, the cross looms very big, praise the Lord. But the resurrection is kind of like a, an add-on, like an addendum, like a, an afterthought. And that's really a problem. 
Um, if you read through Scripture, it's at the heart of the Old Testament longing. You know, when people looked forward, you think about Job, think about Ezekiel, think about Isaiah, all those prophets, as they look forward, even in creation, as we'll see, it's a hope of a bodily resurrection through the Lord. And it's central to Jesus' mission. He says it is necessary, right? The Son of Man must not only be betrayed, not only suffer and die, but what? On the third day, rise again. The resurrection is the backbone of the early church they're preaching. Read through the Gospel of Acts over and over again. Peter says, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised. Resurrection is also one of our deepest desires. You ever wondered why you're fixated on starting over? Or you're fixated on a new beginning? Do you ever have a friend in college that decided to change their name? Right? One of my cousins wanted to be called Pat. I'm like, you're not Pat. I don't know who you are, but that's not it. Why is that? Why do we want to change our names? Or maybe for you, it's you just can't stop looking at different jobs uh, out of town, out of place. Like, why? Why, are, why? why do you want to look for a new start? Or maybe it's a, a relationship. You can't stop daydreaming or thinking about what it would look like to be out of where you are and be somewhere else. Well, some of us don't have to worry, wonder. Um, maybe you're living through the normal aging process. Maybe you've gone through illness or suffering. And you're like, no, I, I know what that is. That's a desire for bodily resurrection. Or maybe you're in a season of loss, and you know what it feels like to be separated, separated from those you love, and you know what it feels like to long for the day when the Lord would reunite us back together. So isn't it strange? It's a deep longing, but we forget about it. I guess if I do like a, a poll or whatever, write down, write down or think up the shortest explanation of the gospel you can give. Maybe we'd say something like, Jesus died for my sins. Yes and amen. But he was raised, raised to bring with him a new life, a new creation. And Mark's going to give us a couple of hints in the text through it. So he's given a couple, of, a couple of hints as we read through. Um, as I work with our residents, as I'm teaching Bible, as I'm teaching theology, I have to think through, like, how do you read? It sounds simple, doesn't it? It's like, well, we learned how to read in, in middle school or whatever. I say, yeah, but how do you read to understand what's going on? It's hard after having something built up for so long, and you think it's natural. Like my, uh, my daughter wants to know how to swing a baseball bat. I'm like, I don't know. You pick it up and you swing it. Like so much has gone on, I haven't thought about that in years. And so, have you thought about it? how is it that you read? How is it that you understand what's happening here, specifically in Mark chapter 16? I think for me, as I'm trying to break it apart, maybe the, I try to keep two things in tandem at the same time. They're not tensions necessarily, they complement each other. Number one, I try to ask myself, where do we see this point, this topic, this thing, whatever, people, place, event, whatever, where do we see it in all of Scripture? Do we see it come up before? earlier? Are we going to see it come up maybe in the middle? Are we going to see it come up at the end? And how does that big picture kind of inform what's happening right here? Well, not only that railroad track, if you will, but the other one in tandem I try to say is not only big picture, but specifically, how do we see the Lord Jesus um, not only fulfill what's happening, but kind of relive it, relive it, um, recap it, in himself, make it new again. And so hopefully as we go through, we'll see these two tracks here. That something is happening, Mark's alluding to, um, that we've seen before, but it's fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. So look there in verse 1. How does he start this chapter? He gives us kind of a place setting, you know, we're, we're figuring out where we are. He said, when the Sabbath was passed, maybe that's just a practical note. You know, the Sabbath, they closed down all the shops. Um, so what, what could the women not do? They couldn't buy those spices, right? So maybe he was just saying practically they had to wait till the Sabbath had passed, the shops were opened up, and they could buy spices. That, for me, is one of the strangest transitions from college. I wasn't going into the workforce and whatever else. It's that in, 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 in university, in big cities, whatever else, the city never sleeps. 
And so when I've left, I'm going somewhere else, I remember vividly pulling up to Starbucks at 9.05 p.m. I'm like, what do you mean it closes at 9? How is this possible? Or waiting in the, in the, in the, in the parking lot for a store to open up at, at, at 10 a.m.? I'm like, where are we right now? Right? So maybe that's, he's just telling us the, the ladies are like that. They've been waiting, twiddling their thumbs. They wanted to go buy some spices. Or maybe something else is going on. Maybe it's something important. Where have we seen the Sabbath before? We've seen it a lot of places. But I th- I'm, reminded, I'm reminded of right back in the beginning. In the beginning, in creation. What did God do when he created the heavens and the earth? What did God do when they were finished? He said God worked and he rested. Interesting. Interesting. Look at verse 2. What does he say next? And very early on the first day of the week. Very early on the first day of the week. Sabbath back then was the only day with a name. Today we name all of them. You know, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, the rest. Sabbath is the only one with a name, so the rest of them were given numbers. So the first day of the week is after Sabbath, so it would be on a Sunday. So again, maybe it's just a practical note. And practically, that's why the church historically has gathered to worship on Sunday. Why? It's because the Lord walked out of the tomb on the first day. So maybe we need to gather and worship and proclaim that he's alive on our first day. But again, I think something else is going on. Not just a practical note, but it's, it's reminding us back in the beginning. So back in creation, I've already alluded to before. But what happens on the first day when God is making all things, right? On the first day, God said, let there be light. And what was there? There was light. So now, if we're reminded of creation, what are we expecting on this first day? I think we're expecting some light, aren't we? How's he finish verse 2? On the first day, very early, when the sun had risen. You see that? There is a new light that is shining on this new first day. And it's shining in Jesus himself. Because in Jesus' resurrection, it's like the creation in the beginning. It is the work of the creator, now incarnate and at work in the midst of our fallen creation. And the gospel is the good news that our God in Jesus Christ is creating a new world. In Jesus' life, he has been taking the stuff of the old creation, and he has been reliving our life where we failed in our place. He has been remaking humanity so that now it is finished, and he walks out and inaugurates, begins the new creation. We've kind of hit him in passing, but let this just kind of wash over you to see again how Jesus is remaking who we were meant to be. Because we're Adam. Adam was formed from the virgin earth. Well, Jesus became man in the virgin birth. In temptation, where Adam questioned God's word, Jesus, when he is tempted, he quotes God's word. Where Adam chose his will in the garden, Jesus, in Gethsemane, in the garden, chose God's will. Where Adam sinned by the tree, Jesus undid our sin on the tree. And where Adam was made from the dust and because of sin will return to the dust in the grave, it's almost like, again, we're back at the beginning. Because in Mark's gospel, it's been getting darker and darker and darker. That's right, at the, at the cross, it's, it's supposed to be in the middle of the day, but, but darkness covered the land. And now in the tomb, in the silent darkness, in in Christ's rest in death, it's almost like we were at the darkness of the first day of creation. And when God was making all things and the sun arose, 
Here, he is remaking all things in his son, S-O-N, when he rises and walks out of the grave. The whole of reality is remade in his person. It's like Sally Lloyd-Jones in the Jesus Storybook Bible says, everything sad and bad is coming untrue. And this is his real body. This is really him. The Gospel of Luke tells us that he ate fish. John, you know, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, you know, touch, like here are my scars, touch my side. At the end of John, he tells him, don't hold on, don't cling on to me. Because Christians get kind of goofy when we're talking about life after death. Uh, it's Christmas season, right? Uh, it's a wonderful life. Y'all seen that old one? Black and white. My kids can't figure out why something's in black and white on the TV. What's going on? It's like, this is the way it used to be. No, it's a wonderful life. You know, Zuzu at the very end of the movie. Teacher said, every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. Remember that one? And that's when my father-in-law would like stop the movie. Be like, hey guys, we as humans, we don't become angels. Let me, let's just, let's just try set the record straight. We just get goofy. We don't become something else when we die. That's not what God intended. That's not hope-filled. The resurrection hope is only full of hope if it deals with our real life. I mean, us, our pains, our struggles, our sin, our suffering, even our decay and our death. If it only deals with real relationships, I'm talking about dying marriages, I'm talking about rebellious kids, I'm talking about discouraging singlets, or it deals with our real world, darkness, disease, depression. The resurrection is not special if it's you know, only spiritual and only floaty. And it's certainly not special if it stays in the background, if it's just ambient noise. If we've got something else in the front of our brains, why would this stuff is just kind of playing on? We're not really listening. And so as we turn, we turn now to see the ladies, to see their experience. I just want to say the third point, anytime you're reading Scripture, not only taking the big picture, not only looking to Jesus himself, but the third thing is when you are reading Scripture, God himself is speaking to you. He's speaking to you. We say it like we, we know it. We're like, yeah, I know, I get it. No, really. Because so often we treat the Bible like we're reading somebody else's mail. Like this letter was written down a really long time ago for somebody else at some other point, some other time. Or, you know, put it in today's, it's like we're listening to somebody else's voicemail. Sure, maybe God had left a voicemail to, to Mary and the, and the ladies back then or the disciples back then. And it's kind of like we can still replace somebody else's voicemail today. No, when you open up scripture, the line is hot. This is a living word, or as we say, it's inspired. Inspired, you know what word is tucked in the middle of inspired? Spirit, that the spirit continues to work and to speak through this word and to speak to you. So when we read of the women at the tomb, we're reading, it's for us. It is about us. So we shouldn't be surprised. Just as the resurrection and on our, on our minds, we shouldn't be surprised it's the last thing they expected. Look here at verse 1. You know, we mentioned again they had bought spices. Why? They bought spices. They thought they were going to anoint a dead man. But Jesus had already been anointed. Remember Mary pouring out the alabaster jar? His body wasn't going to be in the grave long enough. Or in verse 3, what are they asking themselves? What are they talking about on the way? They're saying, who was going to roll the stone away? But God had already rolled that stone away. The power of God had come down. How do we know it? Verse 5, who do they see sitting there on the, the right side? I saw a young man. That's not just a young man, that's an angel. That, that it's almost like the heavens have been torn open. 
And now the dwelling place of God is, 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 is in, in the Lord Jesus Christ and heavens and the angels are ascending and descending on that place like Jesus talks about. And they saw the angel and they were afraid. They were alarmed, verse 5. It's, I mean, it's fear. It's wonder. It's astonishment. They are troubled. They went to the grave expecting to see a dead man and they are shocked to find the living. You know, a lot's been made to try to distinguish living faith versus dead religion. I think in a way we kind of can see the, the, the makings of dead religion here. Because dead religion is about honoring the dead. If religion is dead, then even, you know, church can become like a funeral. Because a funeral is not really for the person who's passed, it's for the living. It's for those who are left. A funeral is where you come to show your support or you come to be seen so showing your support. Or you come because somebody else wants you to be seen, showing your support. Your mom's like, you better be there. Or you come to what? You think about your life. Somewhat you're remembering them, but really you're thinking about you. You come to process what you are going through in the wake of their absence. The whole thing of a funeral, in, in a sense, again, it's for the living. It's, it's for us. Because, I think, a dead Jesus is a safe Jesus. If Jesus is dead, it makes him safe. We can make him into, into whoever we want him to be, and we sure don't have to listen to him. That's what Jesus warns. He warns the religious teachers of his day. It's in Luke 11, it's in Matthew 23, the same warning. He says, you anoint the graves of the prophets, like those ladies. Like, you bring stuff to the dead man's graves. You make it look pretty. You try to anoint it. Why? So you don't have to listen to the prophets. So that they aren't actually speaking to you. See, this type of religion, it's easy for us. To think it's, we just come to church and we bring maybe a little spice and we try to do our best and we try to remember and whatever else, but nothing really changes. That's easy for us. That is safe for us. But there's nothing safe about this passage. Do you hear the invitation for them to come into the tomb? Let's look at verse 6. When the angel said to them, not only says, don't be alarmed, not only does he tell them that Jesus who had crucified has risen, he is not here. What's the invitation? Come. See the place where they laid him. Come, see the place. I think the mental picture is the women were like peeking in, right? There's like, they're, they're looking inside trying to figure what's happening. He's like, no, 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 come on in. Step all the way in. I can imagine they, I mean, it's, it's kind of creepy. Graves would be creepy. I don't want to look in there. Maybe something deeper is going on. Maybe they knew if they went in the tomb that their lives would change. Maybe they knew that if they finally went in there and saw what had actually happened, that they would not be the same when they came out again. Because if Jesus really is alive, then their life would have to change. Because anything new requires a necessary ending. Any new relationship, any new thing you begin, a part of you has to die. Think about dogs. I was on the way this morning, early. It's like 20 degrees on my dash. And there's a, a couple walking their dog, like bundled up. I'm like, yep, even in a relationship with a dog, someone's going to have to die. And how much more with your um, a marriage? Maybe even especially with children. I have been told that my dad was cool before my, me and my siblings came along. I have been told, right, that he had a motorcycle, wore his leather jacket, you know, aviator glasses, had a red sports car, I've seen pictures. It's awesome. And an airplane, like flying around with his friends. He was cool. And then kids came, and what happened? That part of him died. It wasn't just necessary, though it is. And honestly, it was voluntary. He knew something had to change. 
It wasn't unintentional. It wasn't by accident that he traded that motorcycle for a minivan. It wasn't by accident that he, that he, he traded you know, flight lessons for soccer practice. He knew when a new relationship began, something about his life was going to change. So I just want to ask you, if Jesus is alive, what part of you has to die? What part of you has to die? Maybe some sin you've been trying to keep in the basement, like some wild animal feeding it, right? Nobody's going to notice. Yeah. If Jesus is alive, that thing's got to die. Maybe it's some obsession you have. It takes your thoughts, consumes your browser history. Yeah, if Jesus is alive, that's got to die. Maybe it's some selfish dream you have that really, if you're honest, other people are paying the price for. If Jesus is alive, you better hear the invitation. Come, see the place where he lay. Or if we see it other places in the scripture, come and die. What did Jesus say in Luke 9? If anyone would be my disciple, what? They must take up their cross and follow me. Come and die. The biblical picture, we're given to see it in our minds, right? The visible picture of the spirituality, it's, it's baptism. It's baptism. Think about a baptism service we have whenever the, you know, the, the, the pool, the trough right, is up here in front, someone's sitting in there. What are they showing? What are they visibly picturing? They're visibly picturing that their entire life, all of them, who they were, what they dreamed to be, what their entire future, everything else has been buried with Christ. Let's look at Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, he says, he gives us this picture. The truth is, Romans chapter 6, verse 4, he says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Again, who you were, what you brought into the tomb, it is laid down with Jesus. All of it is with him in that tomb. Why? In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Anytime we lay down our life, it is always an issue of faith. If you truly hear the invitation and you truly come and die, that you have to believe that not only was Jesus raised to new life, but that he will raise you with him. If Jesus is calling you to lay down, if he's calling you to come see the place, to die, he's not calling you or asking you to do something he hasn't done. He's asking you, like himself, to let the old end of the tomb and leave it there to step out into new resurrection life. The invitation... You say the good news, the gospel, Christianity, all of it. It's intensely personal, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it gets underneath the hood of your car and it, it's asking these personal questions. But it doesn't just stay personal. It, it moves out to the public. It moves out into the mission. Because not only are we raised to new life, but we're sent. Not only are we invited to come, but we're told to go. Because what's the very next thing in verse 7? Come and see. How is it? How is it um, what comes behind it, after it? Verse 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. But go, don't just come in here, <laughs> head on out, right? Tell his disciples. His disciples, I mean, that, that brings up the last couple of chapters. Who are these disciples? These are the ones that left him. In his time of greatest needs, the one that all were afraid, and so they all fled. One was so desperate to get away from Jesus that he left his, his clothes on the ground, so my Caught a hold of his clothes. He left him on the ground, ran away naked, as my kids say. Naked. Not only these disciples, 
the ones that forsook him, if you want to say that. But what? Tell his disciples and Peter, specifically Peter, the one who betrayed him, the one who in chapter 15 had been put on trial right alongside Jesus. As Pastor Kyle showed us the differences, the stark differences, that when Jesus is facing, you know, the power of the nation of Rome, when Jesus is facing the entire religious institution, when Jesus is facing the entire nation, that he is remaining faithful. But Peter out with bystanders and a servant girl, I mean, he, he calls down curses on himself that he's never known that man. What are we to go and tell? We are to go and tell about restoration. We are to go and tell about forgiveness. That through Christ's death and resurrection, there is now nothing that stands in the way of you and the Lord Jesus. Think about who our greatest enemies are. I'm not talking about, you know, political or whatever else. No, I'm talking about like biblical. Biblically, who are our greatest enemies? I mean, it's Satan, it's sin, and it's death. What has the Lord done? Well, number one, he has defeated the temptation of Satan in the garden. And he has bound him, the Lord says. What about our sin? Well, he has nailed it to the cross and taken it away. What about our death? That's what we see here in the Sabbath, that he has descended into the, into the death. He's descended into death. Why? So that now nothing can separate us from the love of God. Because I think that's the question whenever we are in the silence of the tomb. Will the love of God hold? It's held through temptation. It's held through sin. Is it going to hold through death? But when the sun rises very early on the first day, we're given the answer. What does Paul tell us? Nothing, therefore nothing will now separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Neither death nor life, angels nor demons, nor rulers nor anything else in all creation. Nothing will separate you. You are not the sum total of your past. You are not too far gone. Your past disobedience does not disqualify you. It doesn't mean that Jesus can't use you. It doesn't mean that he is not now speaking to you the same message of restoration and forgiveness. The gospel message, I mean, it changed Peter's life. You can read through Acts whenever he's preaching. You know, the, the, the turn in every one of Peter's sermons. It's, it, is, it is to everyone who believes in Christ receives what? Forgiveness in his name. It changed Peter's life. They can change yours. He's coming to you to speak of forgiveness, speak of restoration. Not only that, he's going before you, isn't he? Verse 7, go tell his disciples and Peter, tell them what? Tell them that he is going before you to Galilee. What's the significance of Galilee? Why is he going there? Well, it reminds us the earlier chapters of Mark, chapters approximately 1 through 4 or 5 or so, and there, it's the, kind of the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And it is a ministry of, of service, and it is a ministry of witness. His service, I mean, he's doing great things. He's healing the blind. Um, um, he, is, he is casting out demons. He is cleansing. He is teaching. And that's the witness part. Because it's there in Galilee that he said the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. And so maybe Galilee, is, he's telling them, he's given just as I have done in my ministry. So now you are to do. Service and witness. It's kind of like word and deed. Or as we talk about, it's mercy and mission. It's doing good things and it's, it's communicating the good word, if you want to put it that way. Service and mission. Well, maybe also, I think this may be more important. What, what do we know about Galilee? Why is Jesus sending them there? 
He's sending them there because, I think, he's sending them back home. Galilee's where these men are from, most of them, the majority. Where they were brought up, where they were raised, where their families are. I think the truth has been communicated is um, if you're going to change the world, you have to start at home. Wherever the Lord is calling you to go, it always begins at home. And for some reason, it's always hardest for us at home. You can be such a dynamic leader, such a strong, um, confident leader in the workplace, and then you get at home around the dinner table and you wilt. You don't say the things you're supposed to say. You don't speak to your kids what's on your mind. Or it's the holiday season. We're looking to go home, right, or home's coming to us. Either way, home's about to happen. And you're aware of the conversations that you need to have. You know them. You know who you need to talk to and what you need to say. How do I know you know it? Because you have those conversations. You just have them in the car on your way home. Maybe it's your spouse or maybe it's by yourself. You're like, can you, they're still in the same spot. I can't believe they're still dealing with the same thing. I can't, can you, do you remember whenever she said, he said this, that, and the other? In a recent podcast, they're saying we have the right conversations. We just have them with the wrong person. The call is to have the right conversation, to go and tell, and to go and tell the people at home, to go and to start there. So I wonder, as you're going, you know, um, to, to the people you know the Lord has called you to go to, maybe it's encouraging, we said it before, and we say it again here, begin thinking about those conversations and levels, if you want to put it that way. Begin thinking about your opportunities and levels. This is what I mean. You kind of have the level of casual. What's casual? It's, you know, whenever you're trapped in that cycle, you just talk about sports and the weather. You're like, man, it's getting cold out there. <laughs> Back slap, laughing. How'd you see the games? Like, which game? I don't know. I'm just trying to make small talk. It's casual. It's really hard to go from casual to spiritual. Really hard to make that gap, to, to, to leap across casual to spiritual. Be like, hey, how's the weather? Getting a little cold. Have you heard about the resurrection? <laughs> Remember, between casual, if you put it that way, and spiritual or gospel, I mean, there, there, there's a level of meaningful. And it, it is difficult to make the gap from the weather to, to the cross, but, but maybe if somebody starts talking about the, the disappointment they have in relationships, maybe it's something like um, the, the struggles they have at work or in, uh, with their parenting, I don't know. When you start having those meaningful conversations, it's just a first step, but I promise, when you start having those conversations, the way to the cross, the way to the empty tomb becomes much clearer. You can make that step. And I just want to encourage you, as you go home and, and are thinking about the conversation you have with the right people, I just want to encourage you to stick to what you've experienced. Stick to what you've experienced. If you've been around church or in church or whatever else, it's almost like when we begin thinking about these gospel conversations, it's like, it's like we try to play the game of chess before we get there. And you're like, you're trying to think of like the moves and the counter moves. And like, well, if they ask about this, then I need to read this book and then give me the answer and I can go here and this, that, and the other. I, uh, a friend asked me to come grab lunch, and, and they, they're going to speak to their mom. I mean, I've been praying with him for his mother. And he said, hey, I just want to talk. I mean, I was, what, what if she asked this question? Or I've actually, you know, I saw this on, on the news the other night. What if she bring this up? And I'm like, oh, hold on, hold on. Before you play the entire game of chess before you get there, I mean, she doesn't want, want to have a debate. She wants to talk to her son. She wants to talk to you. I just want to say, whoever it is the Lord has put on your, your heart right now, uh, whoever is far from God but close to you, they want to talk to you. They want to know not only God's story, they want to know your story. How has brought resurrection life in, in your life? 
So you can stick to what you experience. Like the apostles, what did they say? Uh, this Jesus whom you crucified, God raised, and we are witnesses. You can be a witness. Tell them what you've seen, what you've experienced. But the promise of the text is you don't go at it alone. It's not like Jesus is your personal trainer somewhere else. And he's like, I told you what to do. I gave you the meal plan. I gave you the workout schedule. All you got to do is get yourself in shape. That's what we feel a lot of times. Jesus is like, you know who to talk to. Just go do it and let me know how it goes. Jesus, because of the resurrection, he's not, he's not far away. What does he promise? The end of verse 7. Go, right? Go and tell. Even go back home to Galilee. End of verse 7. The promise is there you will see him, just as he told you. There you will see him, just as he told you. Jesus is calling you where he already is. He's already, in some sense, told you where to go. And I promise he'll be there waiting for you when you get there. Because of the resurrection, the good news is that his personal presence is with us by his spirit. He doesn't send us somewhere he is not. He goes with us. And his personal power is there. As Paul reminds in Corinthians, it's not we're ambassadors. It's God who makes his appeal through us. How? By the Spirit. So the invitation is to go and tell the promises. The resurrected Lord is, will be there with you. He'll be there waiting. As we see in verse 8, this is where uh, most people think the gospel uh, likely ended. Maybe if you have your print Bibles, you can see there, there's like a footnote or maybe like some brackets. It's a difficult ending. It's a difficult passage because um, it's surprising. It's certainly unexpected that it would end here. Let's read it. Mark 16, verse 8. After all this, it says, They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. I mean, can you imagine? They had no idea what to do. Maybe it's because their like, surface-level expectations uh, were completely turned upside down. Right? They expected to go there and see a dead man. They brought spices, and they're like, wait, what? Or it could be deeper, like we are talking about. It could be that they realized that, no, this means that everything we have known, our entire life has been changed. There is a new creation in Christ, and just grappling with what that means. It could be that they felt the pressure, that it's up to them, right? You go. You tell the disciples, and they're like, who, me? I mean, I don't know if I can or where, if I could, or this, that. Many of us don't have to wonder what that feels like because we're, we're there. If the women are confused or afraid, that's how a lot of times we are. We've experienced something great. The Lord has moved in power, and we think about where he's calling us to go. And <laughs> we're a little confused what it could look like, and we're certainly afraid to take that step. And, and maybe, just maybe, we end up like they do in silence. But we know that's not the end of the story. It doesn't end there in silence. It goes on. It has to, right? We see it in the other place in the New Testament, and we see it in history, that this message that was given to them, it started in Galilee. They took it, and then it went to the ends of the earth. So let me ask you, what do you think changed? What changed that moved them from fear and silence to hope, if you want to put it that way? What changed is that they met Jesus on the way home. They saw the living Lord. And he in himself became their living hope. I've been struck personally in this past season 
just that hope is a gift of the Spirit, and hope is in such demand these days. I don't know if you hear the same, but all I hear, I feel like, is how it's darker than it's ever been, it's going to get worse than it's ever been, and it's it's hopeless and it's terrible. And no, I'm not just talking about, uh, you know, society, not just talking about politics, not just talking about the economy, but we hear it there. I mean, I'm I'm talking about the, the stuff about our lives. But maybe you're going through a difficult season, difficult season, and you are not looking forward to having to sit across from family and them asking questions. What's going on? What are you doing with your life? Where are you going? Because to be honest, you have no idea because you are afraid. You're afraid of failure. Or maybe it's a difficult family member. You know what I'm talking about. The one that you certainly do not want to see again. You're hoping they don't come because you don't even know what to say at this point. There's been so much water under the bridge, so much scar tissue, that if you're honest, you're afraid. You're afraid they're never going to change. Could also be some of the closest relationships in your life. Maybe it's your kids or a child. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's a spouse. I don't know. You can put on a good show out in public. You can kind of pretend enough to where you've fooled yourself. You don't think about it often. But those relationships are at such an odds, at such a strain. They feel like they're dying. When you're by yourself, even those closest to you, you, you wonder, and you're afraid. Are things always going to be this way? Or maybe you're in a season of loss. A season of loss, you've, you've gone through losing someone close, and, and again, you, you still are not present, even if you're in a room full of people like here. You're still alone. Why? Because you're afraid. You're afraid that life will never be the same again. I wonder, what's the good news of the resurrection? The good news is that Jesus Christ has brought a new creation with him. The good news is that he is making all things new. And the good news is that he himself, by his spirit, is our living hope. Because our fear died when Jesus walked out of that grave. We can live in the hope of the resurrection. Let's pray together. Our Father, we don't want this just to be another day where we hear some more stuff, some more information. It kind of plays in the back of our minds. We don't really give it full attention. Lord, we want our lives to be changed. We want the resurrection of the Lord Jesus to take hold of us and bring us in a new life. Our real life, our sufferings and our struggles, our real relationship, those closest to us, our family. Yes, even in this real world of darkness. Lord, help us to see Jesus today. And because of him to be assured of hope that you you have done great things and you will do great things. In our Lord Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.